Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. And today it's a huge pleasure to be joined by Liesl Strauss, founder of Art Girl Rising, an initiative that addresses the wide, widespread underrepresentation of women artists throughout the art industry. Liesl is also the co founder and director of Subject Matter an online art gallery that empowers artists and works to address inequalities in the art world. In 2019, Liesl was selected by UN Women to be one of nine innovation role models for its global campaign as part of International Women's Day. And actually, that's how we first met. Exactly. Oh, sorry. I'm just jumping in here, but I have the biggest smile on my face because I just remembered how we met and it was so surreal, wasn't it? It was so surreal. I mean, being in New York at that time and it just being, it was like, was it minus something? It was totally freezing. Um, It was minus eight that morning, I think. It was completely frozen over. (laughs) And our, our faces were um on billboards like everywhere oh my god how did that feel for you oh my god it was the most well first of all i want to say i will never forget how i met you and where you will always have such a a big place in my heart even though we just really at the beginning of our friendship um i remember standing getting ready to go and and be part of this panel discussion at this un event and you this just woman came up to me with this beautiful boiler suit and just this evanescent energy going hey are you Liesl and I'm like uh yeah and I'm like well you know because it's New York and it's like so strange and people don't just come up to you and and then of course you were your face was next to me in the World Trade Center <laughs> and and I was just I could just see you were just feeling as completely out of body as I did and I remember you went to see it this morning and at this point I haven't seen it yet and then that evening when I went to the World Trade Center and I saw it, it was like I mean it was like 10 meters high was it tall like it was like insane on this whole wall and our nine faces and there we were. It was very strange. For me, it was very, I'm just such a behind the scenes person. And it was, it was really, I mean, I don't want to say uncomfortable because it just sounds so damn obnoxious, but it was, it was very strange. And I still, um, I'm incredibly grateful. I always say it was such um, an honor, but I'm also deeply aware of the privilege and that I could fly there and be there. And we definitely not, I'm definitely not the nine mo, or I'm not one of the top innovators in the world, but it was just so serendipitous to be part of this process of that process. And, and then to meet you and, and, um, yeah, it, it, it was very surreal to answer your question. I can't even actually really speak about it because I get so embarrassed and flustered. I'm sitting here all red. My whole face is just blood red. <laughs> but that's, that's I think, you know, part of um, the magic of you is like, you know, you say you are behind the scenes, but you're also doing so much for so many people and so many women. And it's, you know, it's sort of those people that need to be celebrated. And I think it gets very easy just to always pick, you know, 
the same obvious names. And I think actually the the kind of genius of that campaign is it really, you know, what really made me aware of some incredible people that I didn't know, um, that I was just honored to be, you know, part of that lineup with. Um, and you being, you being so top there. <laughs> Oh my goodness, you gave it such a, an amazing angle, not even an angle, just the reality of it. Thank you. I've never, I wish I spoke to you more about this um, because you're so right. You tend to see the same people over and over or um, from the same circles and you are so right. Um, I've also met in the process. Yeah, wow. Yeah, thank you. That really made me think. And, and you know what? It will also help me in, in future not to be, so shy about it um and to actually really celebrate it and yeah thank you thank you it's awesome it's such an and uh, it's a far more healthy way to be looking at it or not healthy you know what i mean just a more a, a real way a real way of looking at it and not just being so much in my own head and and Exactly. Anyway, can we step away from the billboards now, please? Yes, we can. Um, so how, just, you know, briefly before we move into the core of the show, how have you been coping with the, with the lockdown and where are you in the world right now? So I am in Malaysia and to give you the best sound quality, I've closed my windows and my aircon and it's the tropics. So it is a hot, sweaty mess this side. Uh, we moved to Malaysia just under three years ago. We were supposed to move to China in May, um, but all the borders are shut. My husband has a corporate job and so we've been moving around quite a bit. Um, and we, I was very, very lucky to arrive. We arrived in Malaysia, my son and I, we were all out in South Africa for my cousin's wedding and uh, we arrived literally three hours before the Prime Minister announced full lockdown and I don't know if you know but um, Malaysia has one of the fewest cases because, I don't know if it's because there's, there's more than one theory on that but one is certainly because our lockdown has been unbelievably strict. We literally had a drone flying over our apartment telling us to go inside we weren't allowed to go outside um exercising nothing um and we came out of lockdown maybe just over a month ago and i mean everybody's wearing masks still but we have such low numbers i think it's just over a hundred people died wow um and but it's also there's also um you know they also say that there's different strains that some strains of covid kills and some doesn't but i'm i'm not a scientist i don't know i just can say that it was very interesting to be in a country that's that's typically known to be very relaxed you know in warmer climates you know governments tend to be more relaxed and but they were unbelievably strict and yeah it was full lockdown for months and uh we now out and yeah i feel i feel i feel I feel grateful, like you said, when you and I chat before, like in time of introspection and um, gratitude. And I had all of that. And then I just went through like just um, a phase of like just also, of course, understanding how unbelievably lucky we are. Mm -hmm. And my business somehow is, is doing well. And, you know, I... And it's just not the case for so many people, you know, and I think also after Black Lives Matter resurfaced, it's it's just made me just 
think of everything and, and I guess you just become more and more aware that we've got to be grateful every day and check your privilege, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I, I feel good. I am a little less in gratitude at the moment and more into, oh my God, I just need my own space. I adore and love my husband and son, but oh my God, I just need my own space. I'm like so desperate. A friend of mine said yesterday, she just goes to the the bathroom and just sit in the bathroom for half an hour to have some quiet time. She has four children. I only have one. Um, But I, yeah, that I think for me, it's the alone time. I'm actually, I come across as an extrovert, but I really love being on my own and I'm definitely introverted too. So I'm I miss that. I miss that a lot. How are you doing? Tell me, how are you feeling? How's lockdown for you? Oh, well, Lisa, that's so sweet, but we haven't got time for for my opinions. <laughs> so. You can tell me just how you're doing. It feels awful always with an interview. It's like, right, there goes the person for 15 minutes and you know nothing about the other person. <laughs> well, that's the that's the part of you that doesn't want to be up in the World Trade Center, you know? But yeah, that- I knew you were going to say this. I'm like, I so stepped into that trap. You are so going to edit this out, right? Thank you, friend. Thank you. All right, let's move on. So, so Lisa, this show, and I know that you, you know, you know, sort of, you have a feel of it, but um, just to kind of set the scene it's uh you know it's an exploration um about or through the music you know that has been meaningful to you throughout your life um the subject of the show is sort of looking at you know your orange juice for the years um which is taken from a quote by oliver sacks about the power of music and how deep it really goes Um, and that quote is music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears it's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I just want to know, what does that quote mean to you? It, it resonates on so many levels, but it's also thanks to a conversation with you a few months ago um, where I said I'm so embarrassed to speak to you because you're a musician and I'm so just like a desert when it comes to sound. I'm very visual, but I'm just not an auditory person. And you were so kind and generous to say, but that's like, let's talk. Like there was just no judgment. And you explained to me, I was saying to you that I can't, I don't hear whatever I hear just sounds like noise to me. And then you explained to me that it is because a lot of the music we hear out there doesn't have the harmonies or you explained it so eloquently to me and you made me not feel stupid by the fact that I just never put music on. And actually, if somebody in my house puts on music, I'm like, I'm twitching a bit. And that, um, it was really unbelievable for me because I then started listening slowly, but surely I created a free account on Spotify and and I started listening to music. And the moment I started listening to music, I started listening to music that my parents listened. And um, my parents got divorced when I was young and my mom remarried. And my stepdad, um, he was really great, um, a great dad in so many ways for us. But he was not, he was very deaf. Um, so in his one ear, so he didn't allow much music in the house because I, I imagine now that I'm thinking about it, he just couldn't hear um, a lot of the sounds. And so I really grew up with no music in the house, even though my mom really loved 
loves music and ABBA is still, I'm so, um, my husband always jokes because I love, I always play my ABBA and it's just because that's the one music I remember that my mom did play. And uh, I suffer from depression and I've never thought about that music could be healing. I, of course, know that exercise and you know, art and of course music is a form of art, but I thought of visual art and it's really during lockdown where, where if you asked me this question before our conversation before lockdown, I wouldn't even have considered that music could have such an impact on my life because I didn't incorporate it in any shape or form. And now I always have it on in my little studio and um, I even make my own little playlists I mean I can't believe it I have like a playlist and then of course I discovered your music and it's just so beautiful and I it's been like a tonic it, it's been a plaster it just feels like it's been a plaster over the not over the cracks but it like to help heal and also for memory I that's one thing um, that I've really loved is to, I would type in an artist's name and then I would listen to the music and I would just have these memories of high school or whatever. And and I sort of just gave myself this title that you're not a, a person that likes music, but it's it's complete bullshit because I adore music. I just don't like all music, I guess. You know, I think what you touched on is something a lot of people can feel, which is that, you know, there's almost this, you see it with art, you see it with poetry on the reverse where, you know, we where you, people feel like they can't have an opinion about something if they don't know about it intellectually. And, yes. I, and I think that's the biggest misconception and where so many people end up trying to like what they think they should like rather than just hey, just what feels good for you? And like, I remember yes. that conversation, you know, that you and I had. And as soon as we started to, you know, as soon as we got into it and you started like naming all these, you know, bands or artists, and obviously a lot of them were older, but, you know, it's like, that's the music that resonated with you. Hey, that's the same with me. And and there's no like wrong answer. It's it's not a, it's not like a, a test or, but then I think there's this whole cool cachet that comes in with like, you know, sort of liking the right things or you know saying the right things or and updating that all the time so you, you've always got something new to sort of talk about or suggest and I kind of think that's bullshit I think you just like what you like and like it's more about like you know the, that whole idea of, of orange juice for the years it's like what it does you know what music does um you know, obviously depression and mood and all of that. But like when you look at what it can do in these miraculous circumstances where nothing else can penetrate and mm -hmm. it can be something that's triggering a memory, but it also doesn't have to be. It's like we know so little about what music is really doing to us on a sort of cellular, you know, on a, on a whole like physical level and emotional and spiritual on every level. And so I think mm -hmm. it's so wonderful that you've re kind of reclaimed your, you know, something that you felt that you didn't really, you had, but you weren't really connected to or you didn't realize you had. 
Yes, so true. And that I didn't feel like I was part of the club, like the, like the art appreciation, the, the music appreciation club. And as you're talking now, I realize it's so similar to the work that I'm doing in the art world is people feel like, oh, they don't understand the art. So they don't, they don't buy art, but we need more people to buy art to support artists. And, and I always say to people, you don't have to, like people say, like, what does this painting mean? And I, I say, forget what it means. Do you respect? respond to it yes or no does it light you up yes or no and now hearing you talk about that is so true with music it's like it doesn't matter whether it's so-called good music or bad music it's like does it touch your soul or not and that's been great so on that note Liesl what was the first song that imprinted on you the first song that imprinted on me was Fats Domino, I'm Walking. It's a just, oh, I think back of, I must have been maybe five or six and my dad always played it. He was always washing his car outside on a Saturday because my parents were divorced. I would go to my dad's house over weekends and he would wash. And there's just two emotions that two things I really remember vividly was the white foam that was so delightful to put on the car. And the second was this fat domino like blasting from my dad's radio. And yeah, I still listen to it all the time. And, um, I've realized that my, my dad is such, he loves music and he's actually, since he discovered Facebook, he has these music groups now on Facebook that he shares with people across the world. And the man is obsessed with music. And in lockdown, I've realized that it's my biggest dream to take him to New Orleans. So I don't know when that would happen. Um, but I've put it out there to the universe to one day go with my dad and appreciate music together. Okay, so let's take a listen to I'm Walking by Fats Domino. Oh, yay! I'm walking, here's the day and I'm talking, by you and me I'm hoping that you come back to me. Okay, and that was I'm Walking by Fats Domino, and that was the track that Liesl Strauss chose as the first song that imprinted on her. And you were saying that um, you remember washing the car with your dad and, and uh, that song and the, and the soap suds were really sort of front of mind. How old were you? Do you remember how old you were when? I think I was around five or six, Um yeah, because if I think of everything felt big, you know, the car felt big, the music felt, sound, felt loud. So I think I must have been quite, quite dinky still. So maybe like five or six, maybe. And what did that song make you feel? Oh, joy. The, the joy of the, the, the effervescence of the bubbles was the same kind of joy from the music. Like it just felt like one story, if that makes sense. Like it just, the, the joy from the bubbles and the foam and, and being with my dad and, and the music, it just, just joy, pure joy and delight. And it just also felt like it was a very, it, 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 made up a very long 
bit of our togetherness, which it most probably wasn't. If I think about it, it most probably was maybe an hour max, but it just felt very significant. So you were born in Pretoria, South Africa. Um, I was born in actually in Kempton Park, which is a, um, just next to Johannesburg. Okay. It's, 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 be- it's between Johannesburg and Pretoria. And you mentioned that you're, around what time did your parents split up? They got divorced when I was two years old. And then you were living with your mom and your stepfather. Yes, yes, exactly. And so what was like, what was home life like for you? You mentioned there was not a lot of music. Was that because of your, you know, your mom and stepfather or was that also just part of the context of the times? My stepdad and my mom worked unbelievably hard. Um, they had their own business and they they worked, I don't want to say day and night, but they worked very, very hard. And so the house was really, f- and they worked so hard to give us a great life. And they, they just wasn't that much, um, I don't know, like, time for silliness I guess and so that was going on my real dad on the other hand was is completely um to this day very unattached to um to like fancy lives or material possessions and he's you know it's it's it, it was a very different household my real dad was just more into like music and day to day and etc and then in terms of the political side of things, I wasn't aware of the politics until later on. My first awareness of what was going on in South Africa was I came home one day and we learned about degrees Celsius at school, like temperature degree Celsius. And I came home and the man that worked in our garden, we were having a conversation and I was always excited to get to the garden with him and hang out with him. And, and I had a dog that I adored and I, I asked him, what does he think it is? Is it like 24 degrees, 25 degrees? And he just looked at me deadpan. And I'm like, no, no, you know, like, is it 19? Is it 20? And and he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I ran to my parents' study and I got the encyclopedias. And you know how it was like alphabetically. You're like, okay, go for via, W for via, weather in Afrikaans. And I was reading to him and he, he told me he can't read. And that was sort of my first awareness of like, something is not right and but I must have been older like 11 or so um yeah it's it's a it's a very hard thing to to reconcile in your mind yeah it was really messed up I just know that we were brought up in a lot of fear and it also it brought a big break with my family um later on when I was in a serious relationship with um, a half Ghanaian half Nigerian man and it 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 brought a lot of problems. So, yeah, it was tough. I mean, it, 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 yeah, it's, oh, but that's a whole other story. So, sorry, I don't know if I answered your question at all, but it was it was certainly strange times. As a kid, were you, you know, were you always interested in art, you know, in terms of like how, what were your kind of, um, you know, what were the things that you were passionate about from a young age? 
I was super passionate about making and creating things. Um, I would just like stick things to my walls, like hundreds of erasers. I don't know how on earth you stick erasers to the wall, but I did. And decorating and making stuff. And I was very interested in making um, art, but you know, it was, oh, sorry, that was my child. Sweetie, I'm recording, honey bunch. Okay. Just having my break. Oh, nice, honey bunch. Okay, I'm nearly done. Okay, give me half an hour. I'll just be inside of you. No, no, you can't be inside of you, my sweetie. I'm recording. It's like a radio program. All right, sorry, we have to recap that. <laughs> That's um, fine. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> yes. So, um, as a kid, it was very clear from a young age. My parents were very um, pragmatic in their thinking that art wouldn't be a, a viable career but yeah visually I was always super interested in how things look and colors and everything but I sort of suppressed it the older I got because it just didn't seem like it seemed frivolous and it seemed not something that has a future so I, I put that to the side and then just sorry coming back to your question around like what it must have been like to listen to music in in South Africa during apartheid is there was censorship of course and a lot of bands boycotted South Africa because of apartheid and to be honest with you I it was only when everybody started coming back I remember UB40 gave one of the first concerts the Cranberries it was a big deal and people started coming back performing and that was in my form like in when I was like around 17 or 18 and that was I guess my formative years but it wasn't until I married my husband and he he told me all these songs about um, apartheid and oppression and not playing at Sun City and give me hope, Joanna. I had no idea that those were freedom songs and because it never made it to our 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 shores. And so that's that's wonderful is is I have I get this very sort of fluffy, warm feeling in my heart to think that all these people were protesting um, against the injustices in South Africa when, you know, yeah, it it again, music is so powerful. And then of course the one thing that I'm very, very excited about being South African and music is um, the story of Rodriguez. I don't know if you saw the documentary of him, Sugar Man. Oh my god, BT, that is the funniest story ever, because I was in New York a couple of years ago with my one of my best, best girlfriends, and she she said, do you know this guy called Rodriguez? I said, um, what, what do you mean? I got really, like, sort of pissed off with her. I'm like, of course I know Rodriguez. Do you know the Beatles? Like, I just felt like, what, what are you, I'm like, are you taking the piss here? And she was like, you know that the rest of the world doesn't know about him. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And then she told me about the film and I watched the film and I'm like, oh my God, she was not winding me up. It's actually the truth. So anyway, anybody that's listening that hasn't seen that movie, oh my God, what a story, right? But isn't that interesting to think someone like him, you were so conscious of, you were so aware of, and there was no realization that the rest of the world wasn't and then on the flip side there were so many you know songs or as you were saying that you had no idea it's just interesting thing of having these two sort of completely separate worlds then kind of integrating 
Yes, that is so, so true. And you also now I realized by speaking to you, one of my friends in high school, I sort of was very prim and proper and like did everything the teachers wanted me to do. And then around, I think, what, around 15 or so, I just became a rebel and gothic and I don't know all the phases we went to but one of my best friends um her parents were like real real time hippies and I would go and visit her over weekends and she showed me the movie hair and it was illegal in South Africa and I saw hair and I to this day it's one of my favorite movies and that scene the age of Aquarius oh my god that music I it was the most beautiful thing. So now that I'm talking to you, I'm like, Liesl, God damn it, you've always loved music. So yeah, that, thanks for taking me a trip down memory lane. So perfect time to ask, what was the, the first album that shaped who you are and had a big impact? I My first CD I bought was The Petra Boys, and I definitely still like it. But the first C, the first sort of thing that I listened to over and over and over was the cars. I bought the cars CD. Oh, sorry, I didn't buy it. This boy gave it to me. And it was um, just what I needed, the song, just what I needed. And I took a bus every Sunday back to boarding school from where my parents lived. We were in boarding school and high school. And But it wasn't like the fancy like England boarding school, as you might think. No, no. Boarding schools in South Africa is a different story. But anyway, he played this, the cars, and he played just what I needed. And I remember thinking, it is the coolest song I've ever heard in my life. I now don't know if it's because he played it, but um, <laughs> and then he gave me the CD and uh, later on. And yeah, that's definitely my first sort of solid memory of like, oh my God. Okay, so now we're going to have a listen to Just What I Needed by The Cars. I don't mind you coming here Wasting all my time Cause when you're standing all so near And that was your Just What I Needed by The Cars, and that was Liesl's choice of the track, but also the record uh, that had a real impact on her growing up, uh, kind of because you were, I guess, a, had a bit of a crush on on the guy who gave it to you. And you, you, know, you said that you were sort of surrounded by very creative people, but you always sort of found yourself on the business side. So I left um, high school and then I moved out of the house and I moved into this commune, which my husband now told me the commune in different countries have different connotations. Like for us, it just means like communal living. It doesn't mean like we're growing and we're tie dying and, you know, it's like, it's just communal living. But we were pretty like, yes, full on like arty commune and um it was a lot of music um a lot of art it was it was it was a wonderful 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 very very important time for me to sort of find my way but I was studying at the beginning I was studying industrial engineering and then I dropped out of that and then I went to study my bachelor's degree in um it started off as tourism and then I swapped to bachelor's degree in marketing and finance and in the end I didn't finish anything. Yeah. And I think, you know, education is also, I mean, you know, for me, it was actually 
from even when I was really tiny. I was like, this is never going to be how I, you know, find what I want to do. Like, I just never saw it as a way of accessing what was really interesting. And, and ironically, the one thing I did get passionate about when I finally came to writing a thesis was the thing that they said would fail and told me not to. And then that was the actually what kind of ended up doing really well. And, you know, so I think the point is that so often it's, it, you know, I think it's just about what feels right for you. And you've gone off and, and, and we're now going to really, you know, talk about all the stuff that you have done, which is incredible. But, you know, I don't think you should have any regrets because if you changed any of that, you might not have, you know, ended up founding Subject Matter or Art Girl Rising or doing all these amazing initiatives. Um, so just tell me, how did you, you know, what led you into that world of dealing and curating? Um, I read somewhere that a friend gave you a sculpture and there was it struck something in you. Exactly. This was the dear friend Kino that I, I met in the commune. She gave me this beautiful sculpture from a, a Swazi artist. And she's a, she's an artist. She's a, an incredible artist. And she really introduced me to a lot of art. She had art classes at her home. And um, it was it was wonderful. She introduced me to it. But then we moved to London just prior to that, I went back to Swaziland and I went to find that artist um, that made the sculpture that my friend gave me. And um, we had an interview with him and I spoke to other artists all in Swaziland. And um, I, I, I can call it a documentary, but that will be wildly <laughs> overselling it. We made a sort of short film about the lives of these um Swazi artists. And I took it over to London with me um, when we moved. And I walked to the South African High Commission one day and on Trafalgar Square. And I literally knocked on their door and I said, hi, um, can I speak to anybody that deals with exhibitions? And they were like, uh, this is the visa office. <laughs> And you know what? I will never forget actually that morning that I was there. Um, Mark Shuttleworth was in the lobby, which I don't know if you know, but he's the first African, South African that went into space. And he actually sat in the lobby. He then said to me that morning that there's, you know, I'm at the wrong side. This is the visa side. I should go to the other side of the, the embassy. And I asked if they, you know, I asked around and it turned out they had somebody taking care of cultural um, development. And the guy agreed to have a meeting with me. And I said, I have this so-called documentary and these um, sculptures, and I would love to do an exhibition. And the guy said, yes. And I was like, oh, fuck, sorry. Bleep, bleep. I was like, oh my God, what now what? I actually have to do it now. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I mean, it was very scrappy. And, and that was sort of the beginning of of the art, getting back into the art world. And how many years before studying subject matter was that? A long time. That, that was uh, 10, 10 years after. We moved to Japan and, and the earthquake and tsunami happened and, and 
th- that sort of made that's what sparked um, subject matter because I started um, a thing called My Japan, which was a crowdsourced initiative. Um, I asked on Facebook, I was still on Facebook back then, I asked on Facebook, what does Japan mean to you? And I asked people to upload photographs of Japan because so many people wanted to do something for Japan, but they didn't know where to start. And I was just really, I think the timing was just right. We had thousands and thousands of photographs uploaded and um, we're lucky the the TV channel picked it up and it, it sort of just rolled on and we raised lots of money for Tohoku. It was for the Japan Emergency Fund. And through that, through doing this, the idea was that we would show that we would ask people to vote on Facebook for their favorite photographs. And then those photographs I would have as an exhibition in Japan. And so we did two months, exactly two months after the earthquake. So on the 11th of May, um, we showed um, just in our house, um, we cleared all the walls and we took out all the furniture in this one room and we showed all the all the the top voted for photographs of Japan. And that sort of sparked the idea for subject matter. We just thought, wow, people are not so scared to buy art when it's a photograph. That's super interesting because I actually didn't realize that, I didn't realize the sort of, you know, Japan segment of that story and um, that whole idea. I know subject matter is really about making art you know, more accessible, the whole thing that we talked about at the beginning with music. Um, so just for the people listening, you know, um, all over the world um, right now, just tell us like a little bit about what subject matter is and what what you were doing at that time with it. Sure. So subject matter is an online art gallery that our biggest goal is to find more art buyers, to create, help create more art buyers in the world so that more artists can make a living from their craft. We just realized that so, so many people are scared of buying art. And when you walk into a gallery, you feel hugely intimidated. I know now having an online gallery seems like, oh yeah, of course. But back then, oh my God, the judgment. And you were basically like, if you would mention to anybody in the art world that you have an online gallery, it it just wasn't cool, (laughs) you know? Um, And so I'm so unbelievably grateful for this time. Sorry, I'm not grateful for COVID, but one thing, one good thing that came out of it is that the art world have sort of just accelerated by five to 10 years. Um, you would never have seen prices online for the big galleries like White Cube or whatever. And now they not only do they have online galleries, but they even show the prices. And during lockdown, we had this project that a friend of ours came up with the idea and it's called Lockdown Commissions. And for a really accessible price, £150, you could pick from eight artists and you could um so it's this fine art photography this textile work this painting and then you pay you pick which artist you pay the 150 pounds or 30 pounds extra for a frame and then they do a lockdown commission for you from their home a small intimate commission um it's such a lovely idea and you know the work 
that is up there is so beautiful and it's such a great representation. I mean, I know we'll, we'll talk about Art Girl Rising as well because obviously, you know, a big part of the work that you're doing is looking at the major underrepresentation of women artists. Um, and that's something that also subject matter um, takes into account, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for your kind words. Oh my God, it makes my heart sing to hear that you think you would buy art there because we, you know, because it also takes time. Art is not like, like with my t-shirts with Article Rising. People see it, they buy it because it's a lower price point. But with the art, people t- sometimes take a year or two years because, you know, our, our average price, the commissions were lower price, but the average price is a bit higher. And it, it just takes time. And um, one thing me and Kitty are also very transparent about is how important it is to speak about um, the sustainability of running an art business. Um, you know, that we want to pay our artists fairly. We want to pay ourselves. Um, you know, we, we, we only recently started paying ourselves a salary, but we can't. We need to have a sustainable art business. And for some reason in the art world, we're not allowed to, to speak about these things. And we are really fed up with that that narrative of the struggling artist and that the selling out concept. Um, Kitty and I started a, a a course at the we present a course at the Royal College of Art in London that we started four four maybe five years ago, and we teach the students the business of art. And I swear to God, the first year we did it, some of the lecturers looked at us like the cat dragged us in like it it was we were we were like villains in that very hot high art environment and now after four years you know they've really embraced um sorry not everybody was like that but you know it was so seen like how we we don't talk about art in the uh, about money in the art world and we feel very very strongly about that that we need to help artists to run their art art practices sustainably and that we need to change this narrative of the struggling artists. Artists have children to put through school. They have rent to pay. They have, you know, medical bills. Just like, oh, this topic gets me so fired up. I mean, if you ask a lawyer to draw up a contract for you, you're not going to ask him to do it for exposure. No, bullshit. Like, we need to pay artists. So, and the amount of inquiries we get, oh, we'll put your art on the walls of my restaurant for exposure. No, you paid for your tables, you paid for your chairs, pay for the art. Like, anyway, anyway, that's a whole different topic. So that's what we do at Subject Matter. We advocate and we, we try and change all these stories that's been created in the art world to benefit a very small percentage of artists and curators. Firstly, I entirely agree. And I think that, you know, it's such a romanticized, ridiculous bullshit notion of like, you know, that, the, yeah, the artist has to be, you know, starving and, and impoverished. And, and also because otherwise they're, you know, they're, some, they're sort of not as... I don't know, pure or something. So, uh, you know, there's been this whole thing. It's with music as well, where you hand over all the control to someone that inevitably 
it often screws it up because, you know, they're trying to, you know, milk you or they're trying to keep you on the pills so that you you can be controlled. And, you know, it's that whole thing of like, actually, like you look at Ray Charles and just how much ownership he took and then how he was able to negotiate just on his terms. And it, but there was always this reticence also in music and also sometimes from the artists of actually kind of um, empowering themselves. So it's this twofold thing. And I think that whole narrative needs to change um, because, You're so right. um, but also the narrative around women. And, uh, and I know, you know, the stats, I mean, just tell us some of the, the stats related to women in art. So women artists are so unbelievably underrepresented in museums and galleries. The numbers are absolutely frightening. It is, it turns out that research, recent research shows that 13.7% of art in the most prominent museums and galleries in the US are by women artists. 13.7% only. Um, and so, you know, that is that is absolutely shocking. Another fact is um, of the 100 most expensive works ever sold, none is by a woman. Um, I'll give you two more. Of Out of the 18 prominent art museums in the U.S. with over 10,000 artists, 80%, 87% of those are male and 85% are white. I'm just going to say it again. Out of 18 prominent art museums in the U.S. with over 10,000 artists, 87% are male and 85% are white. Um, you know, it just goes on and on and on. And, and I, uh, to be honest with you, I go through moments of very, like moments of determination and then moments of despair. Earlier this week, I was doing research um, for a new project I'm working on um, for specifically to work with museums and galleries to try and help get their numbers in order. And I, the optimist in me, just kept thinking, I'm going to stumble upon research and numbers that will reveal that the situation isn't as bad as it is. But the more you dig, the more you're just like, how is this possible? Like, I, 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 I can't make sense of it. So, yeah, that's that's what I'm trying to do with Article Rising is to advocate for women artists. So the Five Women Artists campaign, that that was the original inspiration behind Art Girl Rising. And just like tell everyone, you know, just a bit more about Art Girl Rising and also like, you know, the power of the T-shirt. Uh, it's a big surprise to me. So what happened was two years ago, two and a half years ago on International Women's Day, I saw a hashtag five women artists that was coming through on Instagram and it was the National Museum of Women in the Arts they were asking people in all the major cities they were going around with a microphone and a camera saying can you name five women artists and most people could say Frida and not more and then I looked into the numbers and I just couldn't believe it. Um, and then that evening when I was on the treadmill doing exercise, I have no hand-eye coordination. So anyway, it's um, 
I was on there and I watched Queer Eye and I saw Anthony wearing a t-shirt with um, guys' names on and I the idea sparked and I thought, put five women artists' name on the t-shirt and I did. I quickly did it on Illustrator and I made six t-shirts. Um, little did I know that the Frida will be the one that everybody, well, I guess it's obvious because people know Frida, but back then I just thought it's six t-shirts, so 30 women across because I also thought I don't want people just to know five names it would be great if people know more and so I send an email out to um, friends just saying yes yes the idea and I send it out and I went to bed and the next morning I woke up with ping 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 and it was all the sales coming through from Shopify and it's from my online shop and it was the jealous curator um, now dear online friend Danielle Krissa she posted it on her Instagram the jealous curator and she posted it because she was doing a book at the time of women artists so she posted the, the the t-shirt a picture of the t-shirt that she grabbed from my email and she she said what a perfect t-shirt to wear for my book launch okay so she had maybe a thousand comments on there which of the thousand maybe 800 of them were pointing out that i misspelled artemisia on the t-shirt oh my god massive slap in the face emoji so so I went back to everyone saying, don't worry, we haven't printed the t-shirts yet because at this point I didn't even have a t-shirt supplier yet or a screen printer. And long story short, I um, wrote back to everybody and said, I'm so sorry, we're fixing, I fixed it, I fixed it, we fixed the name, it's, we swap, swapped the E with an I. And, um, and then, yeah, the rest from there is sort of, yeah, it was just, it just started flowing and the word started spreading. And then Jerry Saltz, the New York Times art critic, he wore the, the t-shirt. I asked him if I could send him one and he kindly wore it. And then my phone went off again. And then, um, very, very, very serendipitously, um, Anthony bought the t-shirt from Queer Eye. We didn't send it to him. Somebody bought it for him or he bought it. And he wore it um, the first time on his Twitter account, um, but that, you know, that wasn't so visual. And then Netflix posted this picture when the new Queer Eye um, season came out and Anthony wore the T-shirt and, you know, oh my goodness, it was just... <laughs> It was crazy. So we're very, very, very grateful. And the idea with the t-shirts are that it's the first name so that it's not, um, it's not formal. It's informal. So people look at your chest for once. We want people to look at our chest and then they go, Hey, who's Alma? Who's Bertha? And then you, it's an opener to a conversation where you can say, did you know we are hugely underrepresented? So that's the story of the t-shirts. And um, after that wonderful story, Lisa, I, I'm going to ask you, what is the music you would send into space? Wow. The music I would send into space is your music. Honey, I really, I am such a fan of your beautiful music. And I, um, when I play it and I have friends over, people are always like, what is this? And I'm like, oh, let me tell you. <laughs> so, yeah, I would send your beautiful music into space. Um, I am a big, big fan of your music. Uh, I've also recently discovered Abimaro, which I thought, oh, my God, you girls are just so unbelievable women. I should say women are so talented. Um, but, yeah, that's that's who I would send into space. Well, I'm 
beyond touched. And I just for anyone listening, I did not put Lisa Lot to this. So. No, she did not. <laughs> she did not. Honestly, very touching. Uh, is there a is there a particular track or just the the catalog? I love Moth. Okay, Little Moth. Little Moth, yes, exactly. It is on my playlist, and yes, I oh, so beautiful. My God, like I wrote to you, if we can send that to other living creatures on other planets, and that song or your music represents us as a species, I would feel very chuffed with that. Oh, Lisa. Well, on on that very heartfelt um, note, I'm going to play uh, B- Little Moth by BT Wolf. Waited so long to find you. I'm holding this flame beside me, and they'll never know. See you like I do. Darling, I see you clearly in your basement hotel where you saw. Where you fell And the harsh light of truth Left you blinded in the sun But you wrote what you felt The red joy, the fine hell You couldn't lie, you left it bare And tattooed your despair And tattooed your despair Have you in the shadow 
windows you grew It was clear, no one knew Just how sharp every breath Felt to draw and rattle through But the light that you shone It will always burn on You served the world, my little moth At the sink of yourself At the sake of yourself And that was Little Moth by by me, um, and that was the, the music that Liesl uh, Strauss would send into space. And I, yeah, I feel super touched. Um, so, um, you know, you talk a lot about noise in the art world. Um, how do you how do you yourself navigate that um, and that whole startup world, and just keep focused on? You know, as you said, that when inspiration strikes, you know, doing what feels right for you. I moved to Malaysia. I did not know this would heal me, but it was the best move ever. I was so scared of being um, away from sort of the heartbeat of the art world when we moved here. But it was, it's been the most healing thing to me. Um, it's just the art world and, and the startup world. I'm happy actually you mentioned it. The startup, the noise of the startup world really got to me. Um, we were subject matter, we're part of the Google Accelerator group in London. And yes, it was great. And I'm really really grateful that we were in it, but it was also very much about, oh, you're a lifestyle brand. Oh, that's a bit sad. Nobody said it, but that was sort of the undertone and or you, oh, you, you're not thinking about r- raising funds or exiting. What's your exit strategy? And me and Kitty were like, oh, we don't have an exit strategy. We want to build a beautiful, sustainable business that our children can one day run, maybe if they want. Um, I love being on the periphery and well, I'm not even on the periphery. I'm on all different planet, I guess. And it's wonderful. It, it's very healing for me and my personality because I am a people pleaser and yeah, anyway, it's, it's, that's, that's how I cope with it. I moved. I, <laughs> I didn't move away for that reason, but it turns out to be the best thing. And do you see yourself expanding, you know, the incredible scope that you have with Art Girl Rising and uh, subject matter to encompass any more worlds? I, do you mean in maybe in the art world, but a different format, like music, for example? Is that what you mean? No, I just mean like, because my brain thinks in terms of worlds, because I always saw albums and that whole experience as this whole world. So like what you've already done with these two, you know, different but intersecting companies um, where they're doing different things, but actually they also kind of go hand in hand. Like, is there another area that you would love to kind of expand into either with one of the one of the companies or with a new one totally so my my latest project is um which i think will i will do until the day i die i feel like it's like when you said earlier we we shouldn't regret anything everything sort of leads us where it is um the project that i just started i feel is exactly that and it's called fair art and at Fair Art 2030, and it was born actually on on the way on that trip where I met you. Um, after we found out we are these nine women, I was on the plane and I was feeling very um, 
just a little unsteady about the the the, the attention and and I just kept thinking it's only t-shirts and you know I I I I just it sat a little uneasy with me and I thought well one way to do that is and this is I guess what I do I get myself worth from working and <laughs> being productive which I am working on but I thought one way of um stepping up more into this world is to find try and find a solution so yes the t-shirt um is addressing the issue or is bringing attention to the issue but how can we solve it and then I came up with the idea of fair art um but it didn't really fall into place until about six months ago where I was reading the UN's um, 17 sustainability goals um, and number five is gender equality and all of a sudden I just had it and it was it's fair art 2030 and our organization will it's me and I have three other founders and we will our plan is to work with museums and national galleries to take a pledge by to be by 2030, have their numbers in order so that your number of your museum reflects your local census. So, you know, if you have a, a museum or national gallery in Los Angeles and your population split is X, Y, Z, then your collections reflect your population in terms of gender, race, sexual, um, like LBGQT plus, uh, you know, so it, it represents, basically, you represent your people, which museums and national galleries are supposed to do. Like, how how is it 87.7% white male? It's not representing our, the, the role of a museum is to preserve objects of cultural significance and to present it to us to learn from. But I mean, we're not learning the full story at the moment. And so that's what Fair Art will be doing. We're very in absolute initial phases. Um, we literally just started building the website this week. And then we hope to start reaching out to museums and national galleries and asking to take this pledge with us. And then we will team them with change makers and activists and um, policy makers to help them change basically five areas that we've identified in these institutions, how they can um, just become more inclusive and fair. And then we have 10 years basically to do this. Um, so that's what I'm working on now. And I'm definitely trying to think how do we bring everything together because the projects are definitely all related, but I don't know. I don't know. At the moment, I don't have the headspace or the bandwidth to think how I will consolidate it. But Fair art is definitely where, like, that's what's keeping me awake at night and from excitement and, and drive and passion. And, and that's, yeah, that's what I'm very excited about. Perfect. So, um, sadly, we've got to the part of the show where we have to imagine a world without you. Um, and I want to know what, what is the song that you would have play at your memorial? I will play The Killers, Human. It is just such a wonderful song. I like the cheesy music video. I love Brandon Flowers. I, yes, I, oh, no words for that song. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to take a listen to Human by the Killers. You've got to let me go. Are we And 
that was Human by the Killers, uh, and that was the track that Liesl would choose to have play at her memorial. So what do you feel about the power of art, um, particularly at a time like this? I don't know, BT. I'm sorry, I don't have a, um, a very philosophical or poetic answer for this. I feel very... Um, frustrated that the artists and and the art world operate in such different spaces. I know that sounds totally bonkers, but there are these hundreds and thousands, millions of artists out there, and then there's the very inaccessible art world. So if I think of the art world, that's the first thing that I think of and that I find it hugely frustrating. Um, But... I do think, of course, like we always hear, art has the power to transcend and advocate. And But even that, like I don't understand how we are using art to its full potential at the moment if we're showing such a small percentage of the people walking on this planet. Like I, so I, it's not very hard for me when people say, oh, art solves problems and art, art transcends. And, you know, I, I get that, like, but at this stage, I think I'm so in the trenches that I, and it's, we've been in lockdown, right? And I'm very far away from, there are some galleries here, but it's, you know, it's nothing compared to back in Europe or the US. So I am, it's been a long while that I've been staring at beautiful pieces. I have lots of art in my home, of course, but um, after four months, you're even over that a little bit. So I don't know. I think now is maybe a, a difficult time for me. I, I don't. Yes, art transcends and art advocates and helps, but it has to be inclusive and fair. Otherwise, I don't. I think it's a very romantic point of view, and I'm a little bit over it. I'm a little bit over people saying, oh, art can. Yes, it can if it's inclusive and fair, but at the moment it's not. So <laughs> that's how I feel. You no, know, I completely agree. And I think that comes down to the role of, you know, the curator and the gatekeeper. I mean, I hate that term, but it's like, for so long, you know, we've had these gatekeepers in place, but then, which is the sort of the, the negative side, but then the positive side is good curation. And right now, at least, at least I can speak for music, you know, we lost, we really lost curation and we've just got, there's so much noise and there's such little value and it's so not represent representative you know in terms of the stuff that really gets like you've got 0.01 percent of artists musicians making 95 percent of the of the income you know it's so gross it's so bloated um it's so disposable you know in terms of again the stuff that is you know it's all the chart stuff and whatever um and then otherwise you know you've lost like journal we've kind of lost good journalism and good kind of curation in that sense, you know, where people are really choosing something based on passion or gut feeling, wanting to share, you know, this wonderful discovery with, with, you know, a a new audience. And so I think it is their different, their different conversations, because I know, you know, with galleries and museums, it's, they're so, it's so slow and it's so archaic, but it's like we're seeing so many of these archaic structures that are just not working, that are kind of hopefully going to crumble, you know, and hopefully like, 
you know, fair art. Like it sounds like that is so- something that needs to come in and just and just turn those things around and get those kind of flip it all on its head because that's what we need, you know, and we need that everywhere. I think the core thing for me is like the art in the biggest sense is so important to our humanity and it reflects the best of our humanity and it reflects something of our divinity. And if we don't value it or and if it is not, as you said, representative or it's, you know, you, we're only seeing certain or we're only being exposed to very limited kind of portrait, um, then it's not doing is art is not serving humanity and art needs to serve humanity because it's actually the thing that makes us remember that we're human beings exactly exactly totally i couldn't agree more with you oh my god i wish i was in the same city as you i wish i could come over for a cup of tea now so we can solve the world's problems together or maybe over a glass of wine who knows so liesl now we're coming up to the the end of the show and i want to know what is the record you'd pass on to the next generation and why I would love to pass on William Onyabar. I hope I pronounce his name correctly. I, it's a recent discovery and I just love the sound of his voice, but also there's so much hope. Like, um, again, I think if you asked me this question another time, maybe I would have been something else, but it just feels like joy and hope is what I most crave at the moment. Perfect. So we're going to end in just a few minutes with um, Beautiful Baby by William Onyebar from the from the record Atomic Bomb. Um, but my, my last couple of questions, Liesl, um, what, what, is, what are the words of advice that you would pass on? I am giving this advice, but I am by no means following it. So I am trying, I'm learning, but it is to be joyful, to try and keep fun and joy in your life. I am, I recently discovered that I have stripped so much joy from our lives as a family. And my friend, I was moaning to a friend of mine just because my marriage felt hard and life felt hard and I needed headspace. And, and he said to me, Blossom, I think John just wants to have fun. And all you're saying is white privilege, support a small business, women artists. And (laughs) I think I forgot to have fun and I get super anxious and stressed. And I, my advice would be find joy, try and have fun, be silly, try and have fun. You can do advocacy work and do great jobs, but there needs to be a level of fun and lightness and um, less like, managers to our own minds but more tender and that instead of saying I have to do this I have to do this I have to do this try and find I want to do it so I would say yeah joy and tender discipline those would be my two bits of advice that I'm still trying to implement myself by the way (laughs) and what do you think the thread is that connects all your orange juice for the year choices joy actually Strangely enough, it's definitely joyful um, and it is just beautiful. It feels like a balm for my soul or like you say, orange juice for my soul. It feels like it feels safe and and lovely. 
And what is it that you hope to leave behind with the work that you're doing uh, and that you've already done? I don't want to leave behind a legacy. I think um, doing advocacy work, there's that quote that says advocacy work is the rent you pay for living on this planet. And that's, I just think it's our responsibility. It's like breathing and eating. Like you, you have to try and make the world a better place. So I feel that's a responsibility. What I would like to help achieve is, um, fairness and inclusivity. Um, right now in this life it's um in the art world um but maybe i don't know maybe one day i will return to south africa and really confront that um you know but right now yes it's gender equality and inclusivity in the art world and just very last question because you mentioned going back to south africa do you think you know growing up there did that in any way propel you to do the kind of work that you're doing just when it in terms of discrimination and equality and fairness i think so but i only recently thought of this actually it's interesting that you ask it i think it was my relationship as i mentioned earlier i had a serious relationship with um a guy he was half Ghanaian, half nigerian and i saw how he got treated when we were out and about and that he once just got arrested for literally no reason um i'm scared of doing um race-based work because I am from South Africa and I feel very, uh, there's guilt around that. Um, When I was traveling as a backpacker, when I was just coming out of school, you know, if people hear you from South Africa, they would all immediately think you're racist or make a comment about apartheid. So it made me go back into my shower. Um, so yeah, I don't know if it, if it liked a fire. Maybe it did subconsciously because I grew up with the inequality, but it also made me shameful. And um, yeah, but, but that relationship, really, it was just so shocking. And, and if I think about it now, it's still, I can't get my head around it. Well, Liesl, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing some of the music that makes up your DNA. Um, And we're going to play out now um, with Beautiful Boy uh, by William Onyeba. And just thank you. Thank you again. Oh, thank you so much, BT. Thank you so much. It was so beautiful to hear your voice. And yeah, I have goosebumps. I don't know why. I just have goosebumps. Thank <laughs> you.